Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I am so thrilled and excited to introduce Dr. Caitlin Schwann. She is a senior researcher at the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness, where her research focuses on youth homelessness, knowledge mobilization, and the human right to housing. She is also the director of The Shift. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast, Caitlin. Oh, it's so my pleasure. So lovely to speak with you, Carmen. I know I met you, I think it's, I don't even know how many years ago, because I don't remember when you graduated, but I met you at U of T. I've always been impressed by how your work blends activism and research seem to be very tightly intertwined in your research. It really is. And you know, it's, I mean, as you know, Carmen, because this is the kind of work you do too, it's really tough to kind of strike a balance between both of those worlds and kind of draw them together. But I think this is the unique role that we have as as scholars is to be able to convene these conversations. We have profound privilege and, and kind of opportunities to bring folks together who are doing social justice work with folks who are thinking about, you know, some of the, the issues that you talk about on your podcast with respect to stigma and equity, social justice, diversity. Yeah, so so I feel really privileged and to be in a few roles where I'm able to to work with folks, uh, you know, in various sectors and in academic and community-based spaces. And I want you now to imagine we're in an elevator Mm -hmm. and we're going up a couple of floors and somebody asks you, what do you do for work? How do you give your elevator pitch? Oh, that's such a good question. What I say often is, My work is about trying to end homelessness in Canada and advance the right to housing for all people. And part of the ways I do that is by trying to develop a knowledge base in partnership with folks who are experiencing homelessness that will enable us to to design policy that that is better better suited to ensuring that all of us have, have access to housing. I'm so happy to know that there's a national focus on this especially in a pandemic, I think there just must be so much more challenges people are having to getting safe and secure housing. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, quite honestly, I think we're facing, and, and many countries around the world are facing a real uphill battle, specifically around evictions and uh, like impending evictions. I saw some coverage in the United States the other day predicting that 28 million people will become homeless for the first time, will oh be lifted into goodness. homelessness. Yeah, as a result of the pandemic. Wow. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we're looking, uh, certainly in the North American context, the homelessness sector has been super overtapped. Anyone who's following the issues that shelters are, you know, <laughs> have been full, have been full for decades. So as we're facing the fallout of COVID and, and seeing a whole bunch of folks who are going to be looking at becoming homeless for the first time in their lives, it's, it's so critical to be you know, focusing on the right to housing and, and really thinking about this. Just because just we know, I mean, so many people have commented, housing is a form of health policy. It's a health equity issue. You know, it is a health intervention. And yeah, we're, we're, we've got an uphill battle ahead of us, Carmen. Oh. Okay, before we get into this battle, yes. I want to learn more about, I want to show up at your place. I think yes. you're in Toronto. Yes with a time machine and i want and we're gonna physically distance in the time machine okay yes, um, perfect. where are we gonna go if i ask you why are you studying homelessness what what inspired you on this journey in your life's passion oh that's a lovely question yeah what i would say is like so i grew up in a small town in ontario and which small uh, town because i'm from a small town oh yeah i'm from owen sound oh you know i'm from port elgin oh my gosh yes carmen i think i knew this at one time and you were the big city can i just say yes you had um you had a mcdonald's and yes. you had um a mall yes <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> Maybe going to the city, it was own sound. But now I go, of course, it feels like a small town. I can't believe, I forgot that there was a connection. I know. Funny. Okay, back to your, back to going back to own sound. Yes. So (laughs) grew up in own sound. (laughs) And one of the things that we would do, like my mom and my sister and myself would visit Toronto on occasion, obviously. And I think as a child, seeing folks living on the street was, enormously confusing and i think that's extremely true for many young young children the idea you know and i remember asking my mom well where where do they go like why why is that person asking for money or food and i i couldn't understand it i i you know and it would stick with me and you know quite honestly <laughs> i would kind of steal from my mom's purse while she was looking and try to give out whatever she had in her change purse so it was kind of like a it's probably an overstatement to say it's like a kind of a moral trauma but i would say it was like a, a you know a, a little bit of a political awakening for me at a really young age mm-hmm. um, around the injustice of that and the terror of imagining myself as a child in that position which of course many children around the world are and, and that just, that really stayed with me. And um, I had the opportunity to volunteer at youth shelters as a teen and into my undergrad and had the opportunity to build friendships with folks that were living without housing and, <laughs> you know, come to understand the profound challenges involved in, in that. And yeah, that, that really has inspired my work. That's so interesting. Also, just the difference, I guess, between growing up also in a small a small town versus the city. Because in Port Elgin, there was no visibly homeless person. There was one man yep. in, who had a lot of, I guess, well-known mental health challenges. Yep. But the community knew his name. He had a place to go, like his family. And, yep. and we all sort of just kind of had an awareness of who this one person was. 
Yes. And, you know, it was like literally one person, you know, and and everybody knew his name. So it's very different, I think, coming from that context, you know, in rural Ontario to the city of Toronto. And you're like, oh, there's a lot of people who knows their names, you know what I mean? And why is there so many more people here? When I moved from Port Hagen to Toronto in 1994, mm-hmm. I started volunteering at uh, the Daily Bread Food Bank. Beautiful. And I also started working at Dowling House, which is a home for men living with schizophrenia. And those two things, I think, put me on the social work path as well. So there's something yes. about noticing something that, you know, maybe this is something that's also interesting is what we notice is what we're used to. And so we notice homelessness if we're not used to seeing it, you know, so that's also interesting. Yeah, it really is. And you know, it's it's been interesting as I've thought more about homelessness over time, and there's kind of been a greater recognition nationally and globally uh, about hidden homelessness. So thinking Mm. about situations of folks who are couch surfing, or in, you know, in situations of intimate partner violence or abuse, like all of that, as we understand it, is, is part of homelessness. But as a young person in a small town in Ontario, I, like I, I really didn't. I knew young people who were homeless by most conventional definitions, but we certainly weren't, and they weren't certainly thinking about their experiences in that way. Yeah, so there, so there was a big contrast for me, as you say, exactly going to this this bigger city and the visibility of homelessness and kind of, you know, just even exposure to the elements, it seemed mm-hmm. um, unimaginable. Yeah, it still seems unimaginable. Almost every day there's either heat or cold. Yes. I want to jump into the stigma questions with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to know, what would people say is stigma towards people experiencing homelessness really a big deal? Does it really matter when we're looking at all the the issues that um, people experiencing homelessness maybe face? Yeah, I mean, this it's such a good question, Carmen. And I think one of the things that you see in research or if you speak with, with folks who are experiencing homelessness is a profound sense of invisibility and the ways in which they feel like they kind of disappear in the human mm. community. And I think I think a big piece of that is the ways in which we think that people who are, are unhoused, there's some reason that is deserving. Mm, um, so it's and like it kind a blame. Of, yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah. And so, I mean, wait, like going back to kind of to the Elizabethan poor laws in the 1800s, there has been this kind of division uh, around thinking about people who are who are very poor or who, who are homeless as either deserving or, or undeserving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that does, I think, and it's really linked to stigma, it it's sets up a, a policy response and an institutional response of, of trying to divide people up based on this, whether des- they're deserving or not, and enables us to do kind of really wacky stuff in terms of our response. So like, to give you an example, so a, a friend of mine wrote a great book that's actually coming out in a couple of months, Dr. Erin Day, uh, wrote a book called A Complex Exile. And, and she writes about, in a lot of shelters across Canada, for example, if you're a woman who's menstruating, you have to go and ask for a pad each single, each time, right? So multiple wow. times a day or like, you know, throughout your period. Why, why, why don't they just give someone a pack of them? Yeah. So they, 
this is like, and this is the, this is the question, right? And there's multiple kinds of practices like this, where it, there's almost this practice of having to, like the idea was, well, you, you know, folks who are using the shelter drop-in, they might hoard them or they might sell them, or there's an assumption about, it's just a whole range of assumptions about folks who are using the services. And so they have to kind of publicly at this, she writes about this experience of watching a woman go up to this counter and kind of have to publicly announce to the room and the staff that she has her period and she needs a pad and then kind of apologizes and says, uh, it's not going to be that much longer. Wow. And there's just this profound exposure and vulnerability that people who, who are unhoused have to put themselves in all the time in order to access um, like something basic, like, like a pad. Sometimes it's justified on, on the basis of scarcity that, you know, well, we don't have that many pads, so uh, we can't just be giving them all out. So, you know, we need to have people kind of go through this degrading process in order to access it. You know, quite honestly, I think it really deepens the feelings of shame and stigma that come along with uh, being deeply poor and being unhoused. And because of the way we stigmatize people who are unhoused, it becomes um, like kind of, yeah, it's just highly normal in, in a lot of institutional Spaces. It's so so interesting that you're saying this because, you know, on this podcast, we have so many different kinds of stigma and different intersecting forms of stigma. Mm -hmm. And one key foundation of stigma is othering, is when I create a separation between me, who I want to classify and name as normal, yes, the other who I want to name as abnormal and then I add on morality. So I am a normal good person and that's an quote abnormal bad person. And I have to create this distance. And this is really what an example of that if we're somehow blaming people for being some sort of abnormal bad person who's experiencing homelessness and then laying on all these other assumptions like we can't even trust you with pads. Yes. And that's a very, yes. also a very intersecting, like, that's a, a very gendered specific example, yes. right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it really, you, you know, it really extends into all other, like a whole other, it, it extends into violence, quite honestly. So, for example, I work with a network of, of women with lived expertise of, of homelessness called the uh, Women's National Housing and Homelessness Network. It's amazing. And I was, yeah, it is amazing. Oh my gosh, I learn all so much all the time. It's such an honor. And I was speaking with one of our members of this network, and, and she was saying that uh, she works in a shelter out in BC, and uh, it's a co-ed shelter, just mats on the floor, all genders in the same large room. And one of the things we know from research and, uh, and just in, from lived experts speaking out is, is this can be profoundly dangerous for, for women identifying or trans folks uh, to be in spaces w- where, you know, obviously they don't have access to privacy or doors or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so many of the women who were there had asked, you know, can we put up some kind of division, you know, based on gender to create some privacy f- for the women who are accessing this shelter. And there's a lot of resistance to it. And there's resistance from folks who are using the shelter, but, but major resistance from management. And I was trying to get her, you know, I was like, 
like, what is that about? Yeah, I wonder why. Why? Yeah. And you know what it was? It was that each of the mats have a number. And if the idea was if we divide up the space, they're not going to be arranged numerically in the same way anymore. Oh my goodness. It seems like that's a very doable solution, you know? Totally. <laughs> totally. Figure that out. You know, it's 2020. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right? But I mean, genuinely, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They couldn't get around it as, a, as an organization, like either because of bureaucratic reporting mechanisms or like, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure on the micro side, like how that decision making went on. But it's an example of where you have such a dehumanization of people that it's actually hmm. um, becomes possible to prefer to keep the mats in numerical order than to uh, prevent sexual violence, for, for example, wow. um, of women who are in this, this shelter. I was actually ha having a conversation about dehumanization yesterday, and I've been doing some reading on dehumanization. And what's really interesting is that, is that dehumanization means that we turn people into either an object or an animal. That's how oh, typically dehumanization works. And so either yes. there are some objects, you know, or sort of animals, they're not humans. And yes. then, you know, we're able to treat people in particular ways without dignity and humanity and, and things like yes. that. Yes. <sighs> yeah. I'm, wonder and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some ways. I mean, those are very structural ways that are so important to signal and to flag for the listeners. I'm wondering if there's other examples of stigma people who are experiencing homelessness or are unhoused have mm -hmm. in the day-to-day -day that, that you want the listeners to know about. Because I think sometimes it's helpful to, to sort of get an awareness of what the stigma might look like in, in a day-to-day -day life. And then then we can start to think about maybe our own role in in perpetuating it or in stopping it. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I <laughs> it, it's honestly hard for me to even speak about this because of the depth and the breadth of the stigma that folks who are unhoused face, like oh. kind of in every area, like to even occupy public space. Maybe imagine it's a person from the moment yes. they wake up to the moment they try to sleep. What, what yes. might their journey look like? Absolutely love this. So, <laughs> so one, I mean, certainly one of the things that if you are housed, you have not always, but you likely have better access to public spaces and are less likely to some extent to have your, your human rights violated in public mm -hmm. spaces. So if you are homeless and wake up, you might have a cop that's kicking you awake, for example, who is is saying you can't sleep in this space, um, you need to move on. And uh, you might, from there, try to go into a coffee shop, getting looks from folks because you're either sleeping at a at a little table or because you're going to need to have your possessions with you if you're mm -hmm. rough sleeping. So you're taking up space in ways that you know might people might see as problematic so so even just 
this is something that's certainly spoken about really beautifully in the stigma literature is just the power of uh, looking the eyes, mm -hmm. literally people's eyes on you. Yeah. Um, so in one way you're invisible in some ways and other ways you, you, you wish you were maybe more invisible, you know, and, and yes. so you could avoid the police harassment or the public. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, I think it's kind of, as you said, this, it cuts both ways. And it, I think it is to some extent, this dehumanization piece where you, you get positioned as an unwanted mm -hmm. object or animal in, mm -hmm. in public spaces. What I've also heard really consistently is the extent to which people don't like in their engagement, for example, with healthcare providers or, or with mm -hmm. folks in child welfare or, or criminal justice, they don't, they're not seen as knowers about their lives or experts mm -hmm. on their lives. Like they're like, you're constantly in this position of not kind of quite being believed in the way that we kind of grant to people who are housed. And obviously all of this is like deeply intersectional. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it accumulates really deeply in the lives of folks who are racialized, indigenous folks, folks who have, you know, are facing complex intersections between substance use and, and mental health challenges kind of not being trusted by mm -hmm. the people they engage with to speak about their lives, to say, you know, oh, this, this violence happened, or, you know, I, w I was, uh, I got kicked out of my apartment for this reason. There's, there's kind of this distrust mm -hmm. that people s seem to experience systematically throughout their day. <sighs> and, and, and I was on a, a call last week doing a COVID-19 stigma training with healthcare workers provincially Beautiful. and talking about stigma and how it's intersectional and how with COVID-19, the impacts are particularly pronounced with people who are experiencing homelessness and in some shelter systems. And they were sharing how some of their clients who are living in a, like a homeless shelter mm -hmm. are getting a lot of stigma discrimination when trying to access healthcare in hospitals or other places because they're associated with COVID. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's been, it's COVID's been really interesting on the issue of homelessness because it, it, to some extent it's cut both ways because there has been greater urgency around housing folks who are homeless mm -hmm. um, because, but it's been because they're seen as like quote unquote, like vectors of the disease mm -hmm. um, because they're in public spaces because shelters really do largely don't enable social distance or physical distancing there's been a public policy response to you know to some extent to try to house in a short-term way often folks who are homeless but folks who are who are unhoused are really being positioned as as carriers of of covid i think in ways that are, are deeply harmful deeply stigmatizing and that i think that's true in canada it's also true obviously around the around the world like various informal settlements or slums in, in countries around the world are being cordoned mm -hmm. off or fenced in with, with police protecting the space to ensure folks don't exit. I mean, as actually, I don't know if you know, I have a study right now with refugee and displaced adolescents and youth living in informal settlements in Kampala. And we just got a COVID-19 grant Beautiful. because... I mean, part of it's really challenging and some of the issues that people who don't have wonderful housing um, yeah. or even sufficient housing deal with their insufficient access to water yes, and toilets. Yes. And I think that also impacts people 
here, you know, especially when all the parks were closed, all the facilities, the hand washing. And then on top of that, you have like lockdowns where people, you know, so businesses are actually closed or people aren't allowed to leave or or go to work. And I know that the ticketing, I had uh, Dr. Alex McClelland on who Mm -hmm. started policing the pandemic and how we were, we've been talking about how policing is not a public health strategy or any health issue ever. And so, yeah, so I think I think that's so important. You mentioned that. I yeah. have one, I have one more stigma question. Yeah. What can the listeners do? How can they be part of reducing stigma towards people experiencing homelessness? Oh, that's yeah, that's a beautiful question. I mean, as as I think as you know, like I'm a big structural thinker. Yes. So you, like, you can give us some structural and then give us something we can do. Totally. Next time we, you know, we hear something in a conversation or we see someone experiencing homelessness, what, you know, so give us, give us, you know, a snapshot of some of our yeah. Yeah. on who we are. Totally. At the structural level, I mean, I, I think probably you and I are in, on similar pages with respect to the real need for, you know, just quite honestly, a radical redistribution of of wealth, like a real Mm -hmm. tackling of poverty that we're seeing in Canadian society and a huge tackling of the ways in which housing inequities play out in our country. And when I think about, when I think about, for example, the story of the woman who has to present herself and explain that she has her period in order to access pads, like we have these kind of institutional practices all across different systems. So if you're a healthcare provider, if you're a teacher, if, if you're working in a shelter, I think it would be really helpful for all of us to reflect on what kind of practices do, or policies do we have in place that require people who are unhoused or, or people who are, are struggling with poverty to kind of present themselves, to make themselves really vulnerable, to disclose very personal information in order to access the same kind of mm. uh, supports or care that we get uh, if we are housed or, or we're not experiencing poverty. Like we really need to be tackling some of those kind of everyday practices because it, it may seem, you know, it's a, a terrible, but it may be quite a, a small thing to, for this woman to have to go to ask for the pad, but the accumulation of those experiences mm. in a person's lives, it was just like profoundly disempowering. And what it signals is signals that we don't trust you enough to leave pads in the bathroom or yes. you know, we don't trust you enough to give you enough for the day or the week or, yes. you know, yes. or a month or whatever it is. Yes. Um, that sort of feeling, I guess, almost surveilled or closely monitored for your Yes. Life. And yes. I've heard that that happens in incarceration settings as well. So it's, yes. it's interesting that the homeless <laughs> shelter might have things in common with uh, prison. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And my my colleague's book, The A Complicated Exile, is precisely about about the comparison between the two, actually. Wow. You have yeah. to tell me when it comes out. Uh, I will. And I will actually, I can always edit your podcast to have the links to your your future book, too. So what about the, the person not working in the field? What, yes. What can we do the next time we see someone, you know, who might be um, underhoused or... We yes. hear somebody make a comment. Most obviously, in, engage with folks who you are who who you're encountering, who are experiencing housing precarity. Engage them in a conversation. Smile at them. Like all of those kind of basic warm gestures mm. um, 
are really important. Ask them how their day is. I, I certainly like something I, whenever I'm teaching, um, there's almost always like one or multiple students that come up and, and ask me like, you know, should I give money to folks who are experiencing homelessness mm, on the street or asking? That's a big question. Yeah. And I mean, I'll, I'll tell you where I sit on it. And there's, I guess there's a range of perspectives, but, you know, because the concern for some folks is, well, maybe they're going to use it to purchase substances. And my thinking is, well, people of all <laughs> class levels or experiences with housing <laughs> buy substances. And when we think about the, what our money goes towards, I can think for myself, for example, the clothes I buy, uh, what do they support? Well, you know, um, mm-hmm. like fast, the fast fashion industry, for example, and what we know about the inhumane labor conditions around the world. Like we participate in all way, in a very large number of ways that we spend our money that contribute to social harm uh, and, and harm around the world. Yeah. And I also feel like, why are we telling people how to spend the money? You know what I mean? Yes. Oh, <laughs> like absolutely. Whole, like, why are we trying to control? Like, I'm, you're only worthy of help if you do exactly what I want you to do. Not you yes. get, I don't trust you. It's a whole, I think, not trusting people to make the decision that works for them, you know? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it's amazing to me, and I see it in myself as well, like even after doing this work for many years, it's like, how is it possible that we, because you're unhoused, I trust you less as an expert in your own life or as someone who can make decisions for yourself? Like, why did we, why, why have we built out a, out a system that's really based on that idea. And I, I think part, you know, going back to the stigma piece, part of, I think you should give money to folks and they have mm-hmm. the right to spend that money in ways that, that totally. make the most sense for them. And I think you also are challenging or, or supporting them to see themselves as agents in their own lives. You, you're challenging that idea that they don't know what's best for themselves and you, you're creating an opportunity for engagement. And I guess the other piece I would really say that I think is really relevant in the COVID era, um, and you touched on it a bit, is like what we're seeing across Canada is tent encampments or homeless encampments really Mm -hmm. uh, growing because our shelter system is dangerous because it's it's totally overtapped. Folks are, are moving outdoors. And so there's huge community resistance in a lot of cities around these encampments. And I would say if you are in your, in your neighborhood, these actually are your neighbors. These folks mm-hmm. are part of your community. And so engage them as such. And it's really stop being develop- a NIMBY, like not in my yeah. backyard. Like I'm always like, why are we asking people to move where they're camping under the gardener? Like they get shelter, people are able to get shelter and they're literally just living. They're not hurting anybody. They're living. Why are we, why are we moving people from under a bridge? It just, yes, totally. And I mean, a great activist in Toronto, Zoe Dodd, like, yes. I don't know if you, yeah, Zoe, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get Zoe on this podcast. I've asked ah! Zoe, we're shouting you out, please. Yeah. Podcast. Zoe, do it. <laughs> I'm a long time fan, but we've actually never met. Um, <laughs> But I, I saw Zoe Posey, you know, a couple of weeks ago, but like, okay, if you're on, if you're on a deserted island, what's the first thing you do? Well, one of the first things you do is create shelter for yourself, for survival. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it is truly not distinct from that for folks who are homeless in Toronto, for example, like 
that is the situation. Mm-hmm. If you are out on the streets and you are trying to survive, you need a space. And it, at least for myself, like, I don't know that I would choose a shelter over living outdoors, depending on the context, right? And mm-hmm. I think it's important for all of us to ask ourselves, you know, what, what would you really do in that situation, right? And what, what may look like debris or like unsightly for some folks is actually like for folks who are housed is so central to survival um, for, for a lot of people on the streets or in encampments. So we need to be, so I guess my advice is one, engage, engage directly with folks who are experiencing homelessness, treat them as an equal, invite them to share their perspectives and their experiences with you when you can share resources. So is that money? Yes. Is it, you know, anything from socks to gift cards to like, oh, you know, there's a huge range Mm -hmm. of of ways to reach out. And I think most pressing right now is that we really need to challenge our thinking around encampments. Uh, In the middle of a pandemic, people are just trying to survive and the activism should be around ensuring folks have access to housing. It shouldn't be clearing encampments. Amazing. I know. Thank you so much. Okay. We only, I know we only have three minutes left, so I need to ask you one wild card question. Okay. Oh, great. Yeah. I'm into it. Wild cards is when the listeners get to know you a little bit better. The question I have for you, what is one piece of advice that has been meaningful to you that you want to share with the listeners? Oh, that's great. Um, Or word of wisdom quotation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what comes to mind right now. <laughs> Good. Uh, is lift as you climb. So a colleague mm. of mine said that said that once, and like I think I have just enormously benefited from the ways in which people have been thoughtful to me, like in in my professional life, in my spiritual life, in my personal life. As they've grown, they've brought me along and been invested in my own growth. And I think it's a tremendous gift if we're really intentional about about trying to, as we move forward, bring all others we can with us, you know, get them in our lifeboat and uh, like extend our circle of care. I love that. Lift as you climb. That is amazing. I end up writing all these quotes down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Really giving me some advice and maybe the listeners, I'm sure they're going to love it too. I really yeah. love that. That's so beautiful. Like if, yeah. And that's part of, I think, producing a, a new society where there's less judgment and blame and stigma and, and more. Yes. I like how you said like widening our circle of care, like widening it to care about all of our neighbors, regardless of, you know, the material of their housing, you know? So exactly. Yes, exactly. Beautifully put, Carmen. Caitlin, you're so awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'll have links up to your work. And we're so grateful that you joined us. Oh, my pleasure. So, so wonderful to talk to you and hear all the wonderful things you're doing in the world. And uh, can't wait to see what comes next. Yeah. And maybe when your book comes out, you'll come and be a guest again. Oh, I'd love to. (laughs) Love to. Thank you again, Caitlin. Thanks, Carmen. Bye. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. If you wanna listen
Listen, Listen. 